Hello and good evening, Sebastian Richard here broadcasting live and uh, welcoming you to this Kingdom Fundamentals series where we study the Kingdom of God and um, in detail. It's based on the book that you see on your screen right here, right here, Kingdom Fundamentals. If you haven't gotten the book, I encourage you to get this fantastic book, which is going to really expand your understanding and knowledge of what the Kingdom of God is and how it operates in the earth realm, and what is your place in it, and how you can learn uh, all the principles that operate in the kingdom of God. So, tonight, before I get started with this wonderful episode titled Understanding the Kingdom of God, which is, this time it's part 4a, The King to the rescue. So we're going to start, we're going to begin looking in this part 4a. There's going to be a part 4b, of course. So we're going to be looking at the history of God's salvation. But before I get started with that, just a quick message of public interest. If you haven't done so already, make sure that you head on to thrivingonpurpose.com and sign, sign up to our weekly newsletter to stay up to date with all of our news and updates as a ministry. This will also enable you to follow this wonderful ministry without all the censorship that is obviously very possible on any platform at this time. While you're at it, make sure that you check out our unique Kingdom Patriot and Remnant Arising merch, jewelry, and apparel that we have in our storefront on the website. This is where I got this wonderful hat that you see right here, Kingdom Patriot. Why Kingdom Patriot? Well, I, I've noticed there's a lot of my compadres in Canada and in the U.S. who are very patriotic when it comes to their country, but not so much when it comes to their true place of born-againness, the kingdom of God. So uh, we're trying to create a movement where people are really going to get uh, behind the kingdom of God and become kingdom patriots, which is so much more important. Our kingdom citizenship, as you know, is much more important than our earthly citizenship. Also, if you feel led by the Holy Spirit to partner with this ministry, whether to partner on a regular basis or to just to sow a seed, a one-time thing. You can do so also on the website by clicking the give button or the, the go on the tab where it says give. And now I have taken far too much of your time with all this wonderful stuff. Let's get started with the king to the rescue, the history of God's salvation. I'm going to share with you a verse as we begin. Genesis 17, 7, where God said to uh, Abraham, he said, And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. So far, I've made it clear that the whole message of the Bible is not about a religion. If you've been listening to this series so far, you have seen that it's very clear. It is about a kingdom, the kingdom of God. The whole Bible is an epic story about a kingdom and its king, who happens to be God, the citizens of the kingdom, who are men, men and women, mankind, the loss of the earth realm to an enemy, also known as Satan, the subsequent enslavement of the citizens under an accursed system, and finally, the ultimate reconquering of the kingdom of the world by the king himself in the person of Jesus Christ. 
to redeem his citizens, to free them, and ultimately to make them co-heirs of the kingdom of God. So now, dear watcher, dear, dear listener, dear reader, if you're reading the book, we continue with this chapter, which is the most theologically inclined in this book. And in all honesty, I'm kind of, I don't want to get people to pop off right now. In all honesty, in the whole book, this might be, even though I'm a very entertaining host, <laughs> that's a joke, but it's still, I'm going to try to make it entertaining. This could possibly be the driest chapter. Nevertheless, don't go, stay, stay put. These first uh, two chapters that we looked at are, are of the most, the utmost importance since they serve to establish a firm understanding of the intents and purposes of God in creating and establishing mankind. We will also cover why his redemptive plan took place the way it did. Keep this in mind as we lay the groundworks of this understanding. Also, in the previous chapter, we explored, that was the, the, uh, where we uh, looked at the man's dominion. We explored how God put man in charge of the earth realm and gave him dominion. Now, this begs the question. With man officially in charge of the earth realm, what did this imply when man fell? That's a huge question. So we will now dig deeper into this and more. This is necessary theology. Now, I am not, that's a disclaimer, I am not nor ever claimed to be seminary trained or a certified theologian. However, to set the groundwork for kingdom understanding, we need to get into some theological stuff. Therefore, this, uh, this chapter, we will explore a broad scope overview of how Adam lost the kingdom and why God adopted a gradual process to restore it onto mankind. Now, most of us know this basic scriptural concept, and yet we do not fully understand the intricacies of God's lengthy redemptive process throughout history. For example, some of you might have wondered the following questions. Why didn't God intervene in the Garden of Eden to prevent the fall? Maybe you have asked yourself this question. Maybe not. But these are good questions. Why couldn't God just kick Satan out of the earth realm? Why did it take so long for God to send Jesus Christ? What was the whole purpose of God's covenants with Noah, Abraham, Moses, and David? What was the whole purpose behind all of those? Let us now examine the different covenants of God with man while it is mostly an overview and far from theologically exhaustive, it is nonetheless necessary to do so. This might make this, like I said, this, this teaching appear a little bit drier or unexciting, but this understanding is needed to see the whole tapestry that God was weaving in bringing about the kingdom in partnership with man. Now, as you know, or you might not know this, but the Bible is an epic story. It's one huge epic. 
Now, when they undertake to teach the Bible as a whole, most Bible teachers teach it as such, as an epic story. However, it is interesting to note that the theology behind their teaching depends largely on how God is portrayed in this epic story. See, we learn in the Bible that God wears many different hats. He is a creator. He is a judge. He's a father and he's a redeemer. But for us to understand the kingdom of God and how it unfolds in the Bible, we need to perceive God as a king. As I, I'm sorry, I'm gonna have a little water here, I'm kind of choking on my own, you know. Now, as I stated earlier, this is not always easy for people in most Western countries to perceive God as king. There is even, there I say it, a certain contempt for monarchy held by many people. And this is mostly due to some historical records of abuse by worldly kings and queens. Some of them were ruthless and didn't treat the people fairly. Nevertheless, make no mistake about it. God is king. He sits on the throne and rules over all. Or as David puts it in 1 Chronicles chapter 29, verses 11 and 12, David said, Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. For all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted and head above all. Both riches and honor come from you, and you rule over all. In your hand are power and might, and in your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. What a beautiful passage. Therefore, in order to grasp what the kingdom of God is and our place in it, which is the subtitle of Kingdom Fundamentals, we need to perceive God as a monarch. He is the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords over all. He is, in fact, an emperor. emperor <clears throat> emperors are generally recognized to be of the highest monarchic honor and rank, surpassing even kings. So in the technical sense and because of the vastness of his rule, God is indeed an emperor, although he's not often referred as such. So we need... So we need to exam examine the epic story of the Bible through the lens of the story of a king, God, his kingdom, meaning his government, and his subjects, who are angels and men. We also need to consider it from the perspective of a king who willed his kingdom to be expanded from heaven into a newly created physical realm, which is the earth. He thus created a race of physical beings to have dominion in this new realm to colonize it. But this new realm and these new creatures had an enemy lurking in the shadows, the fallen one, Lucifer, Satan, also known as the devil. Now, the devil's plan was to usurp this new realm by tricking man into disobeying and rebelling against the king. By bringing man to disobey the king's orders to sin and fall, the devil stole dominion from man 
and became the prince of this world, according to John 14, verse 30. He has been since he has since been the prince of the power of the air, according to Ephesians 2.2. So right away, the king put in motion his contingency plan, which was pre-existing, to bring this world back into alignment with his heavenly kingdom. He needed to bring man back on top, back in the dominion of the earth realm, to re-establish his kingdom's rule on the earth. But with man in rebellion against God through sin, how would that be achieved? It's a good question. This is the crux of the Bible story, what I just shared with you. It is about a mighty king, his kingdom, his not-so-faithful subjects, men, a powerful and wicked enemy, and the king's ultimate sacrifice and restoration of his subjects. And this is what this chapter will examine. So as we move forward in examining all these things, let's ask us, let's, I want to ask you guys a question. Where did man fall from? That's one of the subheads. That's the, the next subhead. Where did man fall from? First, let's talk about the fall. Now, we've been taught, we've all been taught this, that the fall is when sin or disobedience entered the world. And with it, separation from God ensued and ultimately death. That is true, but the fall encompasses even more than that. Here is a question, another question for, for you. Actually, it's the same question. <laughs> Don't forget, I'm reading the book, right? <laughs> What did man fall from, or perhaps where did man fall from? Now, some would say that man fell from grace. Some would say that man fell out of favor with God. Others would argue that man fell from perfection into sinfulness. You know, those observations are all correct. But while these do apply to the whole event of the fall, they fail to capture the extent of the fall of man. You see, the ultimate fall of man was a fall from dominion. Man fell from dominion. Physical, so it was a physical fall, absolutely, yes, but even more so spiritual. So man fell from dominion and everything else fell with him as a result. When Eve decided to obey the serpent's voice, also known as the nakash in Hebrew, and Adam listened to her, they fell from dominion. And with that fall came a nasty transfer of authority in the earth realm. To gain legality in the earth realm, Satan needed to usurp it from man and through man. Because man was granted dominion of the earth realm, everything that is to be done in the earth realm needs, man, needs man's cooperation, whether conscious or unconscious, voluntary or not, willing or unwilling. And there's many ways the devil gets man to cooperate with him by laying loopholes and traps in all kinds of legalities, which I will not go into right now. Now, according to Wikipedia, a usurper, 
which is defines basically what Satan did, is an illegitimate or controversial claimant to power, often but not always in a monarchy. In other words, a person who takes the power of a country, city, or established region for themselves without any formal or legal right to claim it as their own. The serpent, the devil, took over the earth realm through deception, through cunning, and by making man doubt the word of God. He still uses the same tactic to this day. Whenever we doubt the word of God, that's when we get into the wiles of the devil. To render us, to render us ineffective, all he has to do it make, is make us doubt the word of God. And here is something else you need to understand. God, having given man dominion, could not, this is very important, could not intervene directly while Eve and Adam were being tempted. If he had, he would have broken his word. We saw that in the previous chapter, right? And his word stated and established that man was put in charge here. Did God have the power to do it, to intervene? Of course he did. He's God. But he didn't have the legal right being restrained by his own word. And I know this may sound weird, like, oh, he's the king. He's, he's got all power. Yes, but he's such a righteous king that, we, as we explained in the previous chapter, he cannot break his own word. So he was basically self-restrained by his word. Sorry. So here's what I could compare this to. Okay, let's have a comparison. At the time of penning these words, I had been married to Elizabeth for 18 years. I'm, I'm going to go on 20 this year, but nevertheless. When her father gave her away to me on our wedding day, he promised her to me. He did so willingly and accepting that the headship of Elizabeth was now my responsibility as a Christian husband. So this meant that technically he decided to stay out of our affairs. He transferred his authority, his headship, onto me. Therefore, as a good father-in-law, he respects our life decisions, whether it's about where we live, the house we live in, how we spend our money, or where our kids go to school, and whether or not he approves of our decisions. If he butted in all the time, he would be breaking this sacred covenant where he gave his daughter away to me. He would be breaking his word. He would be acting as if he had not given her away. So he would be breaking his promise. Notwithstanding all this, if we consult him, my, my father-in-law, on all the matters I just listed, he will gladly help us, advise us, or give us his two cents, as any good father-in-law would. Now, it was the same thing with God when the serpent came to tempt Eve. By giving man dominion, God had what we could call a non-intervention without invitation clause non-intervention without invitation, okay? That was in his contract with man. He, so he was bound 
by his word. He could have easily stopped Eve from being deceived. After all, he's God, like I said earlier. However, if he had intervened and stopped Eve from taking the fruit, he would have broken his own word, and then Satan would have had a field day, legally speaking, in the courts of heaven. Now, God only knows, I don't, what would have happened legally in the legal realms of the courts of heaven and all those ramifications, all those legal legalities, if that would have happened. In fact, the whole plan of God's redemption of man would have been made, I think, impossible if he had broken his own word. The consequences would have been disastrous, to say the least. Another example I could give you is this one. Imagine if you were renting a house from a landlord. This is where you live with your loved ones and all your goods. Even if the landlord owns the house and the land it is on, he cannot just come into your house uninvited whenever he wishes. Every renting agreement comes with a special clause stating that the landlord cannot come into your house whenever he wants. You have to invite him in, even if he owns the house. You have legal rights in this house, even if the house doesn't really belong to you. He can only come in when you give him permission. I will discuss this very important example further in the chapter that is titled God's Rules of Engagement. If I'm not mistaken, I think it's chapter 6. So what you need to understand is that the kingdom of God is ruled by law. And the law in the kingdom, in any kingdom, is whatever the king says. This is very important. We're talking about a monarchy. So God is king and his word is the law. So when he gave dominion to man, this became law. We will see more about the laws of the kingdom as we advance in this book. For now, here are the main things we need to know that happened at the fall. So now we're going to examine the main things that happened when Adam fell. Number one. Man lost his dominion. I already mentioned that, but here I'm going to go in a little bit more detail. So this is the main thing. In doing so, man transferred official rulership of the realm over to Satan, who became, according to Jesus in John 14, verse 30, the prince of this world, and also the god of this world, as stated in 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, and the prince of the power of the air, as stated in Ephesians 2.2. 2. By the way, this implies indirectly that man, before his fall, was all of these things. Prince, ruler, and there I say it, little gods, small g, according to Psalm 82, and restated by Jesus in John chapter 10, Verses 34 and 35, Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law? I said, You are gods. If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming, because I said, I am the Son of God? So that was a pretty cool argument he was having there with the Pharisees using theological knowledge and, and revelation to basically prove his claim as son of God. Now, to be clear, 
I just want to be clear here. The you are God's statement above shouldn't be misunderstood. Many New Agers and New Thought adepts believe that they are gods in a literal sense with an inflated self-image because they misunderstand the more profound implications of this verse. This, of course, is a fallacy. What I am saying, however, is that when we fell from dominion, and this is what I want you to retain here, when we fell from dominion, we fell from a very elevated position and estate given to us by God. Number two of the consequences of this, I feel like I'm doing a countdown. Number two of the consequences of the fall. Man inherited a sinful state. And you're going to see as I, as I go through this, I mean, this is stuff most of you guys already know. Maybe haven't explored it as much as is written in Kingdom Fundamentals, but it's stuff you, that's basic, pretty much basic knowledge. So from the point of the fall to today, man is born in sin. This means that man is born with an unregenerate spirit, sinful and guilty before God. As a result, man needs faith, repentance, and God's grace to be put back in a right relational status with him. Our spirits need to be reborn for us to be called born again or born from above. This is our redemption. Christ came to earth died and rose again to give man this opportunity. This is the message of salvation that has enabled so many of us to be redeemed and walk as kingdom citizens. Now, faith in the sacrifice of Christ and his subsequent resurrection is the only door, the only way to inherit the kingdom of God, to become a kingdom citizen with rights and privileges here and now on the earth, to have the kingdom of God made alive within you by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Remember that Jesus said, the kingdom is within you. This is so very important that you remember this. Always remember this as we go through the whole book. The kingdom is within you. That's absolutely fantastic. And to live in the kingdom of heaven in the presence of God once you die. Now, number three in the consequences of the fall. Sin, death suffering and sickness came into the world. We are told in Genesis chapter 3 that the consequences for mankind were dire. First, we became mortal, physically limited and vulnerable to illnesses. Second, we became sinners from birth and by nature. We became genetically flawed, soulishly deviant and uh, deviant, soulishly deviant <laughs> and spiritually dead i.e. slaves to sin. And with this, wickedness followed throughout mankind's history. Also, for the woman, she inherited painful childbirth and a, quote-unquote, desire for her, her husband. This doesn't mean she simply desires him. That's not what it means. When we examine the Hebrew text and the Hebrew context, it means that she would desire to rule over him, but that he would rule over her. So there's already, we right from the get-go, uh, with the fall, there was a battle of the sexes that was engaged now. So there was a, now an inherent struggle between the man and the woman. Harmony would be difficult to achieve. And the battle of the sexes had begun. The power struggle began in Eden as soon as Adam 
blaming, blamingly stated when he was found out with the sin, he stated this to God in Genesis 3.12, the woman you put here with me, saying that's to God, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some of the fruit from the tree and I ate it. I think Adam was trying to uh, disculpate, uh, I don't know if that's a word here in English, but trying to uh, deculpabilize himself, uh, detach himself from the situation, like trying, trying not to be found guilty and blame the woman instead. But the marital relationship wasn't the only one that would suffer from this. All of man's relationships would ultimately suffer. Our relationship with God and our relationship with one another. I mean, do you know any human relationship that doesn't have any flaws? They are very rare. Number four of the things that we inherited that happened at the fall. Painful toil and sweat became our lot. Initially, Adam had been placed in the garden, okay, in Genesis 2.15, to work it and take care of it. So this was your typical dream job, initially. There was no painful toil and sweat. It was a perfectly tailored and pleasant work. It kept Adam busy. It gave him a purpose as a regent of God's creation. He was literally working as a glorified gardener and keeper of an earthly paradise. However, when he fell from dominion, he was now going to work hard in, his, in this newly fallen and bruised, uh, bruised creation. Pardon me. So he was now going to have to work very hard in this newly fallen and bruised creation. We have an expression in French, you guys probably noticed with, from my accent, that I am not a 100% uh, purebred Anglophone or American. So we have an expression in French about hard work. It goes something like this. I don't work for the devil, I work for his brother. This is to say that hard work sometimes feels like working for the devil's brother, which is pretty close to working for the devil himself, right? Well, after the fall, and with Satan taking rulership away from man, that's pretty much how it's been ever since. Work has been, we've been under a curse system of painful toil and sweat. So Genesis chapter 3, verses 17 to 19 puts it this way. There's consequences to Adam that God is stating. To Adam, he said, because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you. And you will eat the plants of the field by the sweat of your brow. Will you eat food, uh, your food until you return to the ground since you were taken from it? From, for dust you are, and to dust you will return. So since that day, we have been under a cursed earth system that causes us to painfully toil and sweat to obtain our sustenance. By living under Satan's rule for many generations, we have been conditioned to painfully toil, sweat, fret, and stress over money, food, 
clothing, and shelter. This is the cursed earth system that Satan rules. Sometimes I call it the beast system. So under this broken system, very few manage to do enough, to run fast enough, to gather enough, and make enough money to get ahead. It's a minority usually. There was a well-known Montreal talk radio show host I used to listen to when I was younger. And he, he said to a female listener who, call, who was calling in, it was a talk show, so people called in. He said, lady, you'll notice that we are often told in high-performance seminars these days, go for it. You can do it. The only problem I've seen from this seemingly encouraging statement is that it doesn't take into account that made me laugh when I, he says it doesn't take into account that only one in every thousand people can actually go for it and do it. So I remember listening to this and it made me chuckle. Obviously it's funny, but he kind of has a point. And, and you know, I'm a personal growth uh, aficionado. I love personal growth. I've done tons of it, mindset and and really being motivating yourself uh, setting goals having dreams working hard towards all of those those are all great things and i encourage you guys to do it but in the realistically if you look at the world realistically you know for every one person that you see that has great success that has a platform that has a voice there are probably and i don't want to be bursting anybody's bubbles because that's not what i want to do but there are probably maybe uh, 999 others who tried just as hard who didn't achieve that sad success. And that's sad, but that's just a result of being in a world like this. That said, I, I don't want to discourage you. I want to encourage you, but it's still something that we as Christians, we, we know this. I mean, you know this is the way the world works, right? Okay, so um, nevertheless, nevertheless, despite all this, as we will see later in much detail in another chapter, Jesus came to set the captives free and to give good news to the poor. So thank goodness for our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who came to give good news to the poor, to his children, to those who would believe unto him. Now, living as citizens of the kingdom of God and knowing what this actually means is the only way to be freed from the present cursed earth system of painful toil and sweat. We'll dive into this more in later chapters. I will examine more how uh, being part of the kingdom of God actually is an open door, an open window, an opportunity to, uh, to work differently, to work for number one, for, for a different master, but to also get different results through God's favor, through uh, all that the kingdom has to offer. And we're going to look at all this. But the reality of the Earthquirk system is in the Earthquirk system, if you have a thousand people busting their butt, really trying to get ahead, usually it's a very small percentage who actually get ahead, get their heads above the water, rise above everything, and actually make it. And that's the sad truth. Okay. Number five, all of creation, uh, number five of the uh, consequences of the fall, when man fell, all of creation fell along with man. When man fell, the whole earth realm fell with him. If the pinnacle of creation falls, who is man, 
right? The pinnacle of creation. It is only normal that the rest follows. And thus began the whole hierarchical food chain and survival of the fittest, spilling of blood, illness, predator and prey, death and life cycles, etc. That's how this whole stuff started. That's when you that's how you can enjoy nature documentaries today, watching a lion catch a gazelle. <laughs> okay. Romans chapter 8, verse 19 says, For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed, to be revealed in their glory, right? And Romans chapter 8, verses 22 and 24 says this, We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we Wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies, which is the only thing we're missing right now, right? For in this hope we were saved. So this earth realm is suffering. And just as we have just as we have been since the fall, it is waiting eagerly for our manifestation because we are the rightful heirs of dominion here. So while we are able to take back territory from the enemy, right now we can do this, and I'll share more on that in a later chapter, our full manifestation will only be completed at the second coming of Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord, our Messiah, and the King of Kings, the King of Kings. Number six of the consequences of the fall, unwittingly. Unwittingly, man kicked God out. When the woman chose to obey the voice of the serpent, the Nakash, and man followed, they transferred dominion of the earth realm over to Satan. They kicked God out when they opened the door to Satan. The words we heed rule over us. The words we heed rule over us. In this case, Man gave credence to the devil's word instead of the word of the king, the word of God. Now, when man was in charge, he welcomed God in the earth realm. It was a partnership. But with Satan now legally in charge through our disobedience, man found himself living under the legal jurisdiction of a new authority of the earth realm. God found himself on the outside looking in, fully capable to intervene, right? And we saw that already, but bound by his own word and now in the execution mode of his plan to rescue mankind from this mess. Oh, and, and for the record, this was all scripted and part of the plan of the ages for the Almighty. God wasn't taken aback. He wasn't surprised. He wasn't worried by the turn of events. He wasn't stressed one bit. Not one bit. So this and so much more is why we desperately need God's redemptive plan. Number seven of what happened at the fall. Consequences. God's mercy and his grace became a necessity for man. 
Now, obviously, all this drama caused by man's disobedience could have ended right there if God had not chosen to establish a redeeming plan for man. But thank goodness he did. And this plan was made evident through two instances in Genesis. A. First, when he prevented man from having access to the tree of life. This, this is very mysterious, but it can be understood. As strange as this may seem, death was God's failsafe when he put man in charge of the earth realm. But while death was a possibility, it lay dormant in man. It was inactive. Now, when man sinned, he activated death within himself. Romans 5.12 says, Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin, and in this way death came to all people because all sinned. God said of the tree, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat for, for when you eat of it, you will certainly die. That was in Genesis 2:17. So death was dormant in man and would have remained dormant within man forever if man had not sinned. Now, when man sinned, God's failsafe, also known as death, was activated within man. Now, why is that? Well, death, although it is seen as a curse, was necessary to give man a chance at redemption. So it was a crucial provision when God also said in Genesis chapter 3, verses 22 and 23, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden a cherubim, a cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. So this banishment from the garden and the access to the tree of life, the banished access, the blocked access, protected man from his own demise and from permanently being in rebellion against God. So basically, mortality, activated by sin, gave man a possibility of parole from the sentence of sin through Jesus Christ. By becoming mortal, man also became redeemable, provided he seeks God while in this mortal form. Also being mortal and aware of our own mortality makes us seek life eternal. Makes sense, right? It's the opposite of what we, we know that we, we are. We're very aware that we're going to die. And when you're very aware that you're going to die, what do you seek? Well, you seek life to the full. Right? And, and this is what Jesus came to give us. Now, here's how this works. If man had been made to live forever in a sinful, fallen state, he would have been stuck here, which is not a good place to be. Uh, okay? Uh, he would have been stuck in that state. 
So God in his mercy would not allow man to live eternally in such a miserable, sin-laden state. Indeed, it would have been nothing short of a nightmare to live eternally in this fallen state, irredeemable. If he had remained immortal, he would have been just like the angels when they sinned and rebelled. You see, the angels who sinned cannot be redeemed. They did not have the failsafe of death within them and thus became irredeemable when they sinned. It says in Revelation that uh, the eternal fire was prepared for the devil and his angels. If we had eaten from the tree of life after the fall, we would have been stuck in this fallen state forever. So death makes our present sinful and fallen state temporary, not permanent. Death acts as a portal that makes us transfer realms and thus changes our reality and our state of being. We pass from souls in a physical body to a spiritual body. So being mortal grants us limited time in this earth realm. And this limited time is allotted to all, to all of us, unto the possibility of salvation. So all men who have this limited time on the earth have the possibility of salvation. Now, secondly, the prophecy concerning the Messiah, God, through the, uh, let's talk about the prophecy concerning the Messiah. God showed Satan he wouldn't have the last word when he prophesied in Genesis 3.15. He said, and he said to the devil, to the, to the serpent, and I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. So the devil's descendants and the woman's descendants. And I'm not going to unpack all of this here, but that gives you a clue about what you could research. Now, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Obviously, which is more sensitive? Well, the head, right? The head bruises more uh uh, more of a victory than a heel. This was God saying to the devil, I have made a way to someday reestablish the proper dominion in this realm that you have stolen by your craftiness. This is far from over. You will lose because I always win. God always wins. He has a perfect record of 1,522,607. Look, I don't know. I'm just, I don't know. I'm inventing a number. But the point is, God has a perfect record. He's never lost. God doesn't lose. He just can't lose. He's perfect. So now let's talk about God's process of reentry, which is very important. Because God employed a process of reentry into the earth realm when Adam, quote unquote, kicked him out through disobedience, and with Satan now usurping the dominion thing, God had to establish a process of re-entry. Now, in warfare, when the enemy takes territory from you, a plan needs to be devised to take it back. You see, when the earth realm was usurped by the devil in his clever Genesis scheme, it became legally his. Even Jesus did not dispute the devil's claim. In Luke chapter 4, verses 6 and 7, when Satan tempted Jesus, the devil said, 
To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. So he was showing Jesus all the kingdoms of the world. But Jesus came in the flesh to bind the strong man. And the strong man is known as Satan. He came to bind him with the power of God and to take back what he stole. He explains this himself in Luke chapter 11, verses 21 and 22. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own, his own house, his possessions are safe. But when someone stronger attacks and overpowers him, he takes away the armor in which the man trusted and divides his plunder. Now, the Son of God needed to come in the flesh to have legality in the earth realm. Do you understand this? Jesus Christ came in the flesh to have legality in the earth realm. And for this to happen, God needed to establish a covenant with man in the flesh. In the flesh. Now, this is very important what I'm going to tell you here. So God couldn't just barge into the house, you know, the rented house, like you remember the, the example? So the physical earth realm where he had given man dominion, he couldn't just barge in there uninvited. This is why God made the covenant with Abraham in the flesh. God wanted to make sure that he would have access to the earth realm through the flesh in future generations. He bound himself to Abraham through this covenant in the flesh in Genesis chapter 17, verses 1 through 14. This was God's plan to redeem mankind lawfully and victoriously. And it was to be done again in the flesh and in full agreement with God legally. <laughs> As we end this week's teaching on Kingdom Fundamentals, as a side note, this is why no evil entity can verbally recognize Jesus coming in the flesh. So there's not one evil, uh, unclean spirit, demon, that can recognize Jesus coming in the flesh. John chapter 4, verse 2 says, By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And this fact is reiterated in 2 John 1.7. I say this because many deceivers who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh have gone out into the world. Any such person is the deceiver and the antichrist. So there is something extremely powerful about Jesus Christ coming in the flesh. An evil spirit will never recognize this. They will never utter it. They can't. They can't. It, it, it's like cursing themselves. They won't do it. It hurts them. This was a very powerful thing. Jesus Christ came in the flesh. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Thank you, God, for establishing, establishing your covenant with Abraham in the flesh that all the way through all the generations that led to the coming of Christ in the flesh. What a powerful thing this was. Now, this is a long chapter. And as you saw, it's pretty complex. And there's a lot of things to cover. 
So that's why there's a part A and a part B. And I will continue part B next week. And I hope this has blessed you. There's a lot of important information that I gave this week. That's very, very powerful stuff. Very, very powerful. And I know it's going to bless you. Now, if you if you haven't already purchased Kingdom Fundamentals, I, I urge, I encourage you to get yourself a copy because this book will surely bless you in your understanding of the kingdom of God. Now, if you have already bought a copy of Kingdom Fundamentals, I, I appreciate that. I think it's awesome. I think it's really going to bless you. And if it does bless you and you read the book and go like, wow, I love this book. It blew my mind. I want to share the news with others. I want others to know about this book. The best way you can do this is by leaving a review on Amazon. It's the best way to help this ministry and myself as an author, but also to spread the message of the kingdom of God, which is so well um, presented in Kingdom Fundamentals. Well, I hope this uh, teaching has blessed you. I hope I'll see you next week as we continue diving deeper and deeper into the understanding of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God needs to be preached over all the earth. And then Jesus Christ will come again. That was his words from Matthew 24, 14. Uh, I pray that God blesses you powerfully this week as you continue uh, making a, a priority of seeking first his kingdom and his glory. God bless you.